0: Well, turning your Bibles to Isaiah, we have been looking at Isaiah this Christmas, looking at a, um, calling a series, Christmas Hope, and looking at uh, the hope of Messiah through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah. And as you're turning to Isaiah, uh, chapter 11 is where we'll look at this morning. But sometimes I wonder when I see uh, Christmas traditions, uh, I wonder where where did those things come from? Because there's a lot of things that we do at Christmas that have no, there's no biblical basis to it. uh, And they become traditions that are practiced by uh, believers uh, at Christmas time. And sometimes we just get kind of used to it and we think that these are things that must have happened somewhere in the Gospels. Uh, The shepherds, wise men, they must have had some of these things, and I, I looked and was doing some reading. And uh, uh, some of these you may know, some of them you may not. Uh, Christmas trees, where did that begin? Uh, the tradition of bringing an evergreen tree into the house to be decorated can be traced to Germany in the mid or around the 1500s. Uh, the early Christmas trees were referred to as paradise Trees and were used as part of the plays held on the feast of Adam and Eve in remembering uh, the in Eden, and uh, the trees were often hung in homes with round pastry wafers symbolizing uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's table, and uh, was certainly uh, added cookies to the ornaments, and uh, and those are a tradition in German. Uh, Christmas decorations today Christmas trees how about candy canes Um, now there's kind of a a folklore myth of somebody in Indiana that created the candy cane I've seen tracks and different things like that and uh, they may have used the candy cane to symbolize different aspects of Uh, Christ and the death of Christ but that isn't where they began. Uh, Tradition uh, says that candy canes originated again in Germany around 1670 and I thought this was interesting. A choir master at a cathedral in Cologne uh, gave out candy during worship services to keep the kids quiet. So see, even then (laughs) <laughs> they were strategizing with parents in making uh, uh, children, uh, uh, give them a little break. Uh, and it says that he asked to have the candy maker to add like a shepherd's crook to the top of each stick to represent the shepherds who visited the baby Jesus. Uh, Christmas cards. Uh, the commercial Christmas card uh, originated in London in 1843, where when Sir Henry Cole was too busy to write letters. See, laziness can pay off, right? No email, but he sw- it was too busy to write letters, and he asked an artist friend to design a card with an image and a brief greeting that he could mail instead. And the artist printed about a 1,000 of these and sold them there in London for a shilling. Uh, Americans imported the Christmas cards from England uh, up until about 1875. And then uh, a German immigrant, again, uh, Germany plays a big part in a lot of our traditions, uh, Louis Prang created the first American Christmas card line in the United States. Christmas carols. Now, uh, the church has always sung, and Christmas carols. As far as Christmas songs, Christmas carols within the church, uh, really around the 1400s is when churches begin to sing what we would call Christmas carols. But during, but when the uh, hymn books and music books began to be published in mass uh, in the uh, 1800s. Uh, Christmas carols became much more popular. And in 1833, an English lawyer named William Sandys published Christmas carols, ancient and modern, the, a songbook which contained the first appearance in print of God rest ye merry gentlemen, the first Noel, and hark the, er- the, her- the angels sing. Hark the herald angels sing. I want to make sure I wasn't saying Harold was singing, but hark the herald angels sing. Sing, all right. Uh, Advent calendars. Now, the church has always had celebration of Advent, which means the coming of Christ, but as far as uh, some of the traditions around Advent calendars, those things, those came much, much later around the late 1800s and the early 1900s, as far as uh, those those traditions originally the advent cal- can, uh, candle was a single candle like we have today and homes would actually make little marks in the candle and would light it so that uh, in the four Sundays leading up to Christmas that they would burn the candle down to that mark and then take it out in the next Sunday burn it down to that mark and then later individual cri- uh, candles um, came about as far as celebrating the advent but uh, I thought this was interesting the first advent Calendar was produced in the early 1900s by a German named Gerald Lang because when Lang was a child, his mother sewed 24 cookies onto the lid of a box and allowed him to eat one of them every day during the Advent period. Lang used this as a model for his own Advent calendar that he created in 1908 and consequently many more have been produced since then. There's nothing wrong with these uh, traditions as long as they direct us and point us to the meaning of what really Christmas is about. There's nothing wrong with these things as long as they direct our attention to the Christ of, of Christmas. And in our culture, we, uh, we went to a uh, Christmas uh, uh, what is it, ensemble for our granddaughter. And again, as many of you have, it's very noticeable that there was a lot of wonderful Christmas music, but nothing about Christmas. Christ. Nothing about the reason for Christmas. And sometimes in our culture, which is very, which is a secular culture, that we've secularized Christmas to being holidays and festivities and snowmen and elves and all those things that we have fun and enjoy, but they distract and take us away. Even Christians to be reminded of why we are celebrating and why we're doing what we're doing. And so this morning, uh, before we uh, partake communion together, and that will be. Uh, uh, Served among you, and I believe that you uh, received a candle when you came in. If you didn't get one, don't worry about it now, but we'll make sure everybody has one as we want to close and sing in kind of a traditional silent night as we have the candlelit service, uh, and we'll do that at the end. But the Christmas celebration... And the reminders of, uh, uh, of what we are celebrating uh, is about Christ. Sometimes I imagine if you've taken a trip uh, and you notice that the first thing a stewardess does is go through that card in the front of your seat and she puts on the, the life vest and goes through that demonstration. And I remember one time on a Southwest flight, the stewardess was just really blunt and honest and, honest and said, "'Will you all just pretend you're paying attention?' And everybody laughed. And sometimes I feel that way, especially around these celebrations, because we talk about things that become very familiar. And the familiar just becomes we just kind of, you know, we hear it, we know it, we kind of zone out instead of saying, Lord, help me and nurture this time of worship with you. Uh, Many of us and many of you who get stressed out over Christmas, I don't really believe you're stressed out because of the incarnation of what God has done. You're stressed out because of all the extra stuff that is put up on you around you that distracts you from the means. So will you at least uh, uh, give me a little time here to kind of just encourage all of us concerning uh, what we are here to celebrate. We celebrate Christmas and the incarnation of Christ because it's the fulfillment of God's covenantal promise. It's a fulfillment of God's covenant promise. It's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We've spent time in Isaiah just looking at several passages this month Because Isaiah being the uh, ancient, one of the leading prophets of the Old Testament, sometimes folks refer to Isaiah as the gospel of Isaiah because Isaiah is so full of Christ. Uh, And so sometimes we uh, or others have have referred to it as the gospel of Isaiah. But in Isaiah, talks about the coming of Messiah 800 years before the fulfillment of Messiah's coming. And what reason that I think that's important for us to be reminded of concerning the value of the prophetic word in the Old Testament is that, uh, that there are over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. And if you think with me of why that's important, why do we, why should we care? One, it reminds us is that God has had and does have a plan. Right? He's not just reacting to stuff. God has had a plan. And God is marching forward in fulfillment of that plan. That plan began in Genesis 3.15 when in humankind's darkest hour and humankind fell and rebelled against God. There in Genesis 3.15, God promised that there would be a seed born of the woman. And we understand that to be the first prophetic word that foretells the coming of Jesus Christ. That God, at the worst moment in humanity's uh, uh, condition, spoke forth a word of hope to all who eventually hear and read that word. And the Bible says in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. God has a plan, and that should encourage us us when we look at the Old Testament in relationship to uh, uh, the fulfillment of Christ. Secondly is that prophecy encourages us and uh, is a reminder of God's sovereignty over history. God is sovereign over history. And as you know about Old Testament history or history in general, there's a lot of things that happen. There's a lot of things that have tried to to thwart the coming of Messiah. But because God is sovereign in providential control over the events of history, nothing catches him by surprise. Every scheme that the enemy has tried to give to hinder the bringing forth and the coming of Messiah uh, has failed. God has had a plan, and he is sovereign over history. Thirdly, prophecy is, the, is fulfillment, and that should give us confidence in the Word of God. It should give us confidence that what God has said, He will bring to pass. So that's why we've looked at Isaiah. We talk about these Old Testament prophecies, and last is that the Old Testament fulfillment and prophecy of the Old Testament gives us comfort and hope with this, that no matter how bad things Get, God is always true to His word. No matter how bad things get, no matter how dark events get, and when you look at the history of Israel and God's people, things got pretty bad. But God always provides hope. And that's what brings us to Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. And I just want to draw kind of a short uh, thoughts around uh, a, a short theme here this morning. But we're going to finish out by looking at Isaiah chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to Isaiah chapter 11. And if you don't, uh, we'll have it on the screen. And I'm going to ask uh, that you would just, uh, I will read it and you just follow along with me as Isaiah chapter 11. Verses one through five uh, will um, magically appear. There we go. All right. Let's uh, just uh, let me read. You follow. And if you, I'm reading from the English Standard Version (ESV). If you have a different version, get the ESV. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but uh, we'll all wind up at the same same spot there. All right. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. For the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you'll encourage our hearts, Lord, at this special time, this special time of worship as we draw focus uh, regarding your birth and the hope of Christmas. We pray that you'd open your word to us, Lord, and if there are those here today, Lord, that do not have a relationship with Messiah, with Jesus Christ, Father, that you will use your spirit and your word today to draw them to yourself as only you can. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, Lord, as I represent you here this morning before this flock and open your word, God would be acceptable in your sight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning's title is The Triumph of the Savior, and uh, let me just kind of pull one thing out because we're not going to go into any detail uh, concerning this large passage. I just want to pull a couple of things out, but let me just make note of something that, uh, that does fit uh, what we've been looking at all of these Sundays is that it begins in verse 1 where it says, "...there shall come forth a shoot." from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And that should remind us, uh, as we see that, that should remind us that this prophetic word refers to the covenant of David. Jesse, who are we talking about? Jesse, that's the father of David. Now, it says that that a little uh, uh, branch, a twig, a uh, 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 plant, shall grow forth out of the stump. Now, remember what Isaiah, as a prophet, he is not only prophesying future, but he's also prophesying Immediate. He's he's not only looking at what God's word has ahead, but he's also looking at the immediate context around him. And so, as Isaiah the prophet gives this word right there at the beginning, because it's again, it's words of hope, he's saying, Look, there will come a day. In fact, that day will come within about 80 or within 100 years in which this uh, Messiah uh, the promise of Messiah that uh, he mentions here, that Judah, Israel, for our purposes, will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be destroyed. They'll be taken into captivity. It will not be a good thing. It will not be a good picture. So as he talks about the stump, and they're like, well, what is he talking about? What do you mean a stump? Isaiah's looking ahead to the future of his own people. He'll be dead and gone. But he's saying, look, it's going to look like a bunch of stumps out there, that trees, and the nation has just been leveled. Desolation, destroyed. But what does he say here? He says a twig, a branch, life will spring forth from from one of these stumps. It'll look bleak. It'll look bad. It'll look like nothing is happening, that God has failed. But he says, here's hope. There will be life that will come from the stump of Jesse. And I just point that out as a reminder because one of the key themes when you read the Gospels is that Jesus is referred to as the son of David. The Davidic covenant that God made with David and his household when he said there will be one from your household who will rule and reign and his kingdom will know no end. We know that to be Jesus. Jesus. And right here, through this ancient prophet, he gives hope and says, when everything is desolate, when everything is cut down like a bunch of... Uh, I know when we were at the Mahafis, and all those trees were just all cut down and trees falling everywhere. He says, from one of those stumps, the stump of Jesse, in that Davidic line, God's plan will still rise and come forth. That should encourage us, us when we talk about Messiah, but this morning, I just want to focus on a couple of words, the same word in this passage. And uh, if you could go back to show verses 4 and 5, I'm not sure which, if they're both on the same, there you go, if you could just leave that up for a little bit. Notice there's two words there in verse 4, one word in verse 4 and another one in verse 5, and that is the word righteousness. And that's really what I want to zero in on the time that we have, righteousness. That the triumph of the Savior, the coming of Messiah, will be characterized by righteousness. He will have, at verse 5 it says, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Um, Now Israel always saw the Messiah in terms of political victory. They always saw the coming of Messiah as kicking the bums out of Rome and establishing them back to their kingdom and their power. That's the way they always saw it. And there certainly is a context for that because God is, will fulfill his promises through the nation of Israel, okay? That being Messiah. But there's something greater here. When we talk about the righteousness of the, Savior, of the Savior that we need to pay attention uh, to. There's a greater victory. There's a greater triumph of the Messiah that will transcend just the national political triumph of Israel, but there's a greater victory of Messiah that we all can get in on. What was this Savior who was to come? What will he bring? What what will the Savior possess? And what do we desperately need the most? What, What is it that we do not possess, what we cannot attain or earn? And that is we lack the righteousness of God. That's what we don't have, and that's what Messiah has, is the righteousness of God. The Bible is clear that it says that we are not righteous. We are not righteous. We cannot know God personally. We cannot have a relationship with Him. We cannot be brought back into alignment with our Savior, with our Lord, because we have a righteousness deficit. The Bible states that because of our sinful nature, because of our rebellion inherited by Adam, what the Bible says from our first parents, that when Adam drove the train off the cliff, we were all hooked to that train and we went over the cliff with him. The Bible says in Romans 5 that through one man's sin, sin entered to all, just as when One man's sacrifice, looking ahead about Christ, through one man's death, life came to many. And because of that sinful nature, we are, in essence, hopeless in our own selves. We cannot fix our own issues. We are broken. We are fallen. And Romans 3 reminds us, Paul says, there is none righteous, no, not one. We have a righteousness problem, but yet the character of Messiah who would come, righteousness would would be his ornament that would be upon him. Greatest gift that we need this Christmas. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the greatest gift you need is the gift that you cannot buy for yourself, and nobody except Jesus can give you the gift of God's righteousness to make you right, to make you justified. The Bible says sometimes my kids will say what do you want for christmas and i say what i want you can't afford so just send me a nice card or call me parents you realize have you reached the point where you just say if you will just call me die will i'll take that you'll just call me every week For the rest of the year, you don't have to buy me anything. Just call me, right? My mom, you say that. No, I'm saying that. You see, we have a righteousness problem. We are not able to fix ourselves. We not only need righteousness, but we need righteousness that's beyond ourselves, it isn't just doing more good deeds. It isn't buying more Girl Scout cookies. It isn't just helping little old ladies across the street. It isn't just uh, dropping a tip every once in a while into the church or some missions fund or some benevolent society. No, we need something that we cannot get for ourselves, and that is righteousness that only God can provide. And this righteousness that we need is tied into The work of Messiah who came not only to bring us righteousness, but he also came to rescue us. He was on a rescue mission. Do you understand that? He came to rescue us and rescue us and bring us to life. Jesus said in John 10.10, I've come to give you life and life, one translation says, better than you've ever known. He came to give us life, give us the righteous life of God But doing that, he had to rescue us from our deathbed spiritually. When I thought about that concept of rescue, I thought several years back, about seven years ago, do you remember the story of the Chilean miners who were working and the mountain or whatever it was caved in on them? And I thought about that because that was just... You know, if you're a little claustrophobic like me, that just, uh, you know, that just, the thought of that. (laughs) But uh, August 5th, 2010, it's hard to believe it was a little over seven years ago, uh, 33 miners were trapped 2,300 feet beneath the earth. Now, just to give you a little concept, that's not quite a half a mile. It's a long ways. Uh, One World Trade Center, the new tower that they built there at ground zero uh, that is only about 1800 feet from the very tip top of the antenna to the bottom they were 2300 feet in the earth they were buried alive underground and frankly everybody did not have a lot of or any optimism really of survival but needless to say they made attempts and began to drill small boreholes into the mine, perhaps to put microphones and anything they could do because they did not know the condition. And 17 days later, after drilling these holes through these bits, they pulled the drill bit out of one of the holes and wrapped and taped to that. Uh, drill bit that they had drilled through uh, the earth there to try to just find some some semblance of of survival. Uh, there was a little note attached to that drill bit when they pulled it out of one of those holes seventeen days later, and the note said, We are well in the shelter all thirty three of us. Well, now they knew that these guys were alive now i 'll be honest with you, it would have been just one thing to think well they 're dead, they probably died in you know whatever. But now they're alive. And the question is, how are we going to get those guys out? Not a simple thing. Sixty-nine days later, can you imagine being in there 60? I can't imagine being in there 69 seconds. But 69 days later, an engineering feat that was short of miraculous rescued all 33 men, one at a time, and they drilled and developed this where they were winched out of where they were down uh, 2,300 feet or whatever it is, 2,700 feet. And they brought them out in this specially made capsule one at a time. I would have had a cardiac in that capsule. But, you know, so they should have just, listen, if I'm ever, just write me off. I'm, I'm gone, right? all right. But one by one, they pull all 33 of those men out. Now, that is an engineering miracle, right? But my friends, let me tell you, as as spectacular and wonderful as that rescue mission is, it pales in comparison to the rescue mission that Jesus Christ came to pull us out of our deathbed. Jesus Christ, the great rescuer, Who came to save us from our sins. The Bible says, for our sake, he who made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, there it is, the righteousness of God. The message of righteousness. That we need. That may seem like an odd Christmas Eve message. We're not talking about angels and wise men and frankincense and gold and mirror and no room at the end for Joseph and Mary and Herod and all those. That's all there. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you know, they haven't changed the data. It's all there. But beneath that, the very heart of why we're here to celebrate is we celebrate the Messiah who came to bring us and give us what we could not give ourselves, to give us righteousness and to rescue us. If I really, as I think about more exactness of that illustration I gave with the miners, it really, to be more true to the gospel, would look something like this. We're dead in the cave. And the only way we're getting out is Messiah came through, pulled us out, individually and breathed life into us back on top. That's a more biblical way to look at that story because the Bible says we were dead. We're not flailing away out in the ocean for the gospel lifeline. We're dead on the bottom of the ocean, my friends. And without a Savior saving us, we're without hope. That's why Paul could say in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes. And then he says, for in it, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It's a righteousness issue. And thanks be to God that as we celebrate Christmas, as we gather every Lord's Day, we're celebrating the fact that God promised a rescuer who would bring us the greatest gift that we could never get ourselves, never attain. For God so loved the world that he gave, sent his only begotten Son. That whosoever, any whosoever's in here? You're worried about the elect? If you're a whosoever, you're the elect, all right? We'll just get that out. Of here. If you're a whosoever and you believe in the gospel, hey, that's all you need to know. Don't get too hung up over all this. If you're a whosoever, I'm a whosoever. And if you hear the gospel and you believe and trust in that gospel as your only hope, my friend, that's a prayer that God will never refuse those who call upon him and say, Lord, save me. I don't know about you, but the, one the, if you're not a follower of Christ, one of the wonderful things that I would think could be in your history is to celebrate your spiritual birthday on the birthday we celebrate the birth of Christ. To ask him into your life to change you. You see, the gospel is that God sent the righteous Messiah to rescue the unrighteous. His righteous life in exchange for our unrighteous life. When we talk about the gospel, that's, the tr- that's as simple as you can get. His righteousness for my unrighteousness. And that's exactly what the angel told Joseph, his stepfather, that God used in the, his birth when he told him how Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins and the bible says that all this took place all this took place concerning the birth of christ to fulfill there's that word to fulfill bring to pass what the lord had spoken by the prophet guess who isaiah behold the virgin will conceive And bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus, and his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Next time he comes, we celebrate today his first advent, but there's a second advent. Advent just means coming. We're celebrating his first advent, but this is not the end of the story. He is coming again. And the first time he came, he came as a baby in a manger. The second time he comes, he's not coming as a baby in a manger. In fact, Revelation 1 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and he will say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Listen, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. He's coming again. And you've heard me say this before. It is better to receive Jesus and bow the knee and ask Him and receive forgiveness as Savior than to bow the knee before Him as our judge. If you do not know Christ, and I'm not talking about being a church person. I'm not talking about being a religious person. I'm talking with the assurance that if this Christmas Eve was your last Christmas Eve on this earth and you were were to find yourself thrust into eternity in a nanosecond, do you have the confidence that you would spend eternity with Christ? And if you do not have that assurance, and if that assurance is based upon being baptized as a child, being christened as a child, being confirmed in some religious order, if it's based upon anything other than Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, that I would encourage you today to look afresh at what Scripture says. And if in doubt, pray and say, God, give me the assurance that I'm a believer. And if I do not have that assurance that I want to receive you into my life. I want you to change my life. I want the celebration every year that we celebrate your birth will be the celebration of my spiritual birth. That's the day that I was born again. Jesus was not born to give us a holiday, people. Did you hear what I said? He was not born to give us a holiday. He, was, he came. He was born, he was sent, he fulfilled. He was born, that baby child, he was born to die so that we might have life. And that we might become the righteousness of God. The righteous for the unrighteous. That's the gospel of Christmas.